This is the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors, fund managers, analysts, and company CEOs to give you an edge when it comes to investing in the commodity space. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. My name is Jesse Day. Before we dive in, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investment advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is the founder of the Commodity Discovery Fund and the author of several books, including The Big Reset. It's Willem Middlecope. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for the invitation. First time. Yes, first time. And as it is your first time on the show, we always start with the origin story. So how did you first discover investing? How did that lead you to the commodity space and ultimately to founding the Commodity Discovery Fund? Yeah, I would like to add, how did I discover discovery investing? Because that's the niche we play. Um, I found investing, I started to invest in the in the 90s. Uh, I'm 61 now, so I was in my early 30s. Uh, I thought real estate was real cheap here in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, uh, compared to London, Paris, Amsterdam was real cheap. So uh, I bought everything on mortgage. I could get mortgages 120% uh, in, the, in the 1990s. And I was able to start uh, with a nice portfolio in the buy-to-let market. And uh, because I was um, getting all this money <laughs> from banks, I started to study the financial system. Where's this money coming from? And I, I actually, I was quite shocked at the late 90s. I discovered that we're in a debt-based system, a fiat system. It was all new to me at that time. And I started to uh, get a bit worried and uh, was looking for hedges. Um, I started to study monetary history and uh, start to understand gold and silver have been hedges, uh, well, for, for a few thousand years. Um, so I started to buy my first physical, 2001, 2002, started to buy some mining shares. And then uh, when there was a first correction, 2004, I noticed that some of my shares did much better. And when I started to do some real due diligence i learned that they were working on a new discovery so that's how i discovered discovery investing so i I decided to change my approach and to really focus on new discoveries in the natural resources started a newsletter middle called discovery alert around 2005 2006 and then 2007 i had a friend a banker friend he said you're stupid you're selling your best tips for 150 dollars uh, stop with the newsletter business as, and, and and build a fund around it. And that's how the Commodity Discovery Fund started uh, in 2008. Uh, it was just before Lehman crashed, so we had a rough start. Uh, we started with 20 investors, friends and family. Now we have 2,000 high net worth investors, mainly from the Dutch-speaking countries. And uh, we're open for Canadian uh, U.S. investors. We can We can accommodate all. And the minimum ticket size in our fund is 50K uh, euros. Very nice. And I do want to dive into the Commodity Discovery Fund and how you're investing there. Get your thoughts on some different commodities. But first, I'd like to get your outlook on the global economy and markets at present. What are the main, both the main challenges and the main opportunities that you see out there right now? Well, of course, we were in the everything bubble. Well, what people call the everything bubble, but the commodities were not in a bubble. You know, the commodities actually were trading at 100-year low valuations at the end of 2020, early to 21. 
Um, so what we see now is um, we have, of course, the um, end of the 40-year well period of declining interest rates, uh, every lower inflation. And now we just started a whole new era of higher interest rates, higher inflation. And I think that's when the commodities come into play. Uh, commodities tend to be counter-cyclical compared to tech stocks. When tech stocks do well, we saw that in the late 1990s, the valuation of commodities is very low. We saw the same in the last few years. I think we're about to see a very strong revaluation of commodities. Actually, we have a perfect storm building for commodities because we have shortages arriving in the markets, just supply and demand. Then we have the debasement of currencies, people looking for hedges. Commodities um, tend to be great hedges in periods of high inflation. Then you have the East-West tension, the BRICS against uh, the West, uh, China versus the US. There's some competitive tension on the critical metal side, which helps us. And then you have commodities like uranium, you know, very important for the nuclear industry. And uh, they really broke out with, 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 with quite some strength uh, lately. And uh, well, uh, around 6-7% of our portfolio is uranium related. And then, of course, we have lithium and the battery metals. That space is heating up. Uh, we're in a, a bit of a correction now for lithium, but I think the, this market will stay strong. And that's, that's around 11-12% of our portfolio. Great. Well, you mentioned uranium. I'd like to start there when it comes to discussing the commodities space. We have seen quite a rise in the spot price. It's at 12-year highs. We've also seen a related rise in many of the equities. Uranium Twitter getting very excited as they tend to do. Do you think we're in the beginning of a, a much larger bull market? Do you think this bull market will differ from the last one pre-Fukushima? Some people are saying they see it as being a more of a longer protracted bull market as opposed to a parabolic spike up and crash down. Would you agree with that sentiment and just give us your overall thoughts on the uranium space? Yeah, I agree with that. If you look at the past uh, bull market, which is, well, some 15, 16 years ago, there were some uh, incidents with a few of the mines, a few of the larger mines, and uh, everybody was afraid of uh, uranium shortages. But what we have now um, is, is a whole new market. Um, I think um, currently worldwide we see less than 400 nuclear um, uh, nuclear energy stations operating, and and uh, there are about 400 to be built in the next uh, well five, ten to fifteen years. Uh, even the Middle East countries who have a lot of um, uh, oil, you know, even countries like Saudi Arabia and the, uh, and the Arab Emirates, is starting to build nuclear uh, reactors. So this is for real. Um, and if you look at supply and demand, uh, it, it's a very small market. And it's really hard for uranium to keep up with demand. There will be production deficits in a few years. Uh, actually, we'll see production deficits in many um, metals, uh, over, uh, especially um, uh, for looking from 2025 onwards. Uh, but uranium is, 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 is a special case. And um, I think it will be very hard to uh, really jack up the production worldwide of uranium. It's a very complicated market. Um, it comes from uh, Niger and Kazakhstan. You know, these are not the most reliable countries from a Western point of view. Uh, of course, there was this huge discovery by Next Gen Energy. Uh, we've been invested with that one for six, seven years now. 
And, and once they um, will start production, that could be 20% of world uranium production. Um, um, but that's, that's also a few years out. So I think this is a very serious new bull market. Uh, it will have some legs. It, it could take uh, actually decades uh, to, to, to develop. So I'm not surprised that everything is jumping now because we are jumping from a very low base. Gold equities make up the majority of your portfolio at the Commodity Discovery Fund. Why is that? And how do you see gold's role evolving in what seems to be an increasingly multipolar world? Yeah, when you mention gold stocks, people will think about the gold miners, but actually we're not investors in gold miners that much. That's a very small percentage of our portfolio. But we focused on the major, the most significant uh, undeveloped mining projects. So we are discovery investors, so we tend to follow the best 100 discoveries worldwide. And we like precious metals because they are a great hatch on uh, well, other parts of our portfolio. You know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a private, as a high net worth person, you always invested in real estate and you have all the other stuff. So then you need some um, precious metals related investments uh, as a hedge. That, that's our opinion. So about 50% of our investment is precious metals related, but we like silver more than gold. But there are very few good silver stories out there. There are very few silver discoveries out there. I think we're in for revaluation of the whole precious metal space. Uh, even central bankers are talking revaluation now because they need some support for their uh, balance sheets. Of course, most central banks have gold on their balance sheet. We see uh, central banks very active and accumulating physical gold for their balance sheets, and that's that's a sign. So we always tend to have 50% of our exposure to the precious metal space and uh, we do that through the best discoveries uh, worldwide. And you mentioned you like silver more than gold. I'd like to get your further thoughts there. Um, some people are pointing to the fact that it seems like silver is becoming a bit more of an industrial commodity as opposed to a monetary metal. Do you still view silver as a monetary metal playing that dual role? And how was, how is the supply-demand fundamentals for silver set up from what you're seeing? Well, that's why silver is so interesting. If you look at supply and demand fundamentals, actually since the 1970s, we have seen production deficits in the markets. And um, you had all these old silver coins from the 50s and 60s, and we used that to fill the gap. But I think um, shortages, physical shortage, shortages in silver could happen uh, in the next few years. Um, especially because silver is used as a commodity for the industry. 60% of all silver is being used, especially in Asia, for electronics and everything. Um, um, so um, there's quite some stress developing in silver markets. You see premiums in, for silver in Asia. Uh, and if you look at the supply and demand outlook for the next 10 to 20 years, there are hardly any new silver discoveries. Actually, there are hardly any real silver listed companies because even companies like Majestic Silver are half gold uh, exposed now instead to silver. So it's a very small market. And I'm of the opinion that the silver and gold prices are manipulated, have been manipulated lower for quite some time. And once this paper selling stops, once this system breaks, like we've seen in the late 1960s when the London gold pool collapsed. There was, there was an effort by central bankers to keep the gold price fixed at $35 uh, 
announced. You could say there's there's some uh, management now to keep silver locked at $20, $25. Once that system breaks and fails because the physical demand is, is too large, you'll see a big run towards $100. It can happen even in a few months or in a few weeks. And I think we've got to be in this market to win this market. Um, but we play this with just 10, 15% of our fund. And what what will it take to break the paper manipulation of both the gold and the silver market, particularly when it comes to silver? I get a lot of dejected comments on my channel of people saying silver is completely useless because it's always going to be manipulated um, and there's no point in even being in it. Uh, what what would be your response to that? You, you could say gold. Uh, we don't need gold because we just put gold from one vault in the other. You know, even the dentists hardly use gold anymore. So we don't use, need gold. We do need silver. Every iPhone, you know, has silver. Every solar panel has some silver. Every car has some silver. So um, <laughs> people will be surprised when this market changes, uh, will change and when the manipulation will break. I, I've, I've seen it before. I was in the market very active as a private speculator in 2010, 2011, when we run from $10 to $50 in, in less than, than two years. So when silver runs, it, it, run, it will run fast and people will be very surprised. Copper equities make up the second largest allocation in your portfolio. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of reports out there of massive deficits in supply up ahead, particularly with the push for the new green agenda and all the copper required for renewable energy systems, etc. Talk to us about what you're seeing in the copper space uh, that has you so bullish. Yeah, when, when people talk battery metals, they always talk uh, cobalt and they talk lithium, but they always forget, you know, it's mainly copper. Uh, copper is the big market uh, out there. And when you look at supply and demand, especially after 25, there are deficits coming. And even the CEO of Glencore, which is a huge trader in copper and also copper producer, they said they won't start any new uh, mines, copper mines, before the prices are much higher. So the industry experts, they tell you, copper price will be much higher. Now, copper prices are still quite soft because we have this uh, economic uh, downturn worldwide because the rates are, uh, are, are getting jacked up. But once this market uh, changes, I think copper will start to fly again. And that's why we have some 25% of our investments is copper related. Uh, copper is uh, very important. It's also for China. So China is looking to buy all big projects which are still undeveloped in Latin America. We have some huge investments in companies like Solgold and we have these huge undeveloped copper mines. And I think China will scoop them all up when they're allowed to do that. You did mention battery metals a few times so far. I'd like to get your thoughts on lithium and any other battery metals you'd like to mention, because from my perspective, it does seem like the new green economy and the EV revolution is poorly planned and not going to materialize quite in the way that the political class pushing it believe it will. Um, Am I missing something here? Is this just a case of they're going to try anyways, so these minerals will be in demand? I guess this could also connect to copper as well, since it seems to be so tied to the new green economy. No, you are right, and politicians are wrong. Politicians here in Europe uh, won't allow people to buy any uh, traditional cars after 2030, especially after 2035. But there's not enough uh, metal around to, to make that transition possible. 
if you just look at supply and demand studies for lithium, we need over 770 new lithium mines before 23. It takes 10 to 15 years, you know, after discovery to build a mine. Uh, we track all new lithium discoveries. There are not 70 uh, new lithium discoveries of size out there. So then you're quite sure that every major lithium discovery which is out there, and we have a list of 10 to 20, they, they, they should go up in price. They will be uh, fought over. And you also see a lot of M&A uh, activity in the lithium space. The lithium space is quite a new industry because five years ago, the total value of all lithium being sold in, in the market every year, there was less than 2 billion. Uh, the, the, the total lithium market, uh, the metal sales will grow over 50 billion a year. So there's a whole new industry. And if you look at a comp uh, company like Pilbara Minerals, they're Australian listed. They um, are just a new producer and they have uh, revenues of four billion and then they have a profit of two and a half billion. So you can see you can make a lot of profit mining lithium now, especially if you find these large deposits. And we focus quite a bit of our research uh, time and energy on, on these new lithium uh, discoveries. And what about the question of recession and how commodities will respond in such a scenario? Because some people point out the fact that industrial commodities such as base metals, perhaps silver to some extent, energy, um, could respond negatively in the face of a recession and broad market crash, and that prices could remain suppressed for some time due to demand destruction. Um, I've had talked to other people like Tavi Costa, Ronnie Stoferle, who believe that commodities actually will perform well under a recession. So I'm just wondering what your view is there. I think market changed quite a bit um, compared to previous recessions. Uh, commodities like uh, copper um, are seen uh, as, as hard assets now. You know, um, look, look at China's activity. China is buying a lot of copper, oil. Uh, even platinum uh, during downturns because they, they know they need to stockpile it when it's cheap. Uh, and, um, and even the downturns uh, will be used uh, by some of these major market participants to add to their positions. And I'm, I'm, I'm not that afraid compared to, um, well, let's say 10, 15 years ago. But of course, when you have a real big crisis and every everything comes stumbling down, uh, you will see the same uh, in, in many markets. But these markets will be the first to recover. And we've seen that in 2020. Uh, we've seen that even in 2008, gold went down first 30% and then it tripled. So um, if if your investment portfolio is 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 wisely uh, well distributed. Uh, among the, the better metals like we do, you always, we, we go down in downturns, but once the recovery is there, we're always up 70, 80, 90% within 12 months. And I expect that to happen again now. So do you think now is a prudent time to have some extra cash on the sidelines? Obviously, market timing is impossible, but a lot of different economic indicators seem to be pointing to a potential recession. A lot of people believe that the broad market is massively overvalued with a small handful of tech stocks holding everything up and due for a deep correction, um, which could bring some commodities down as well. So how do you approach that? Do, do you think it's a smarter move to dollar cost average in 
or perhaps have some dry powder on the side in case of a, a broad market crash to pick up some commodity equities at a discount? It's always wise to have cash. In my model portfolio, which I've been using for two decades now, I have 25% equity, 25% of real estate, 25% in physical gold and silver, and 25% in cash slash Bitcoin. So it's always wise to have some cash. Um, but currently, our fund is not very heavy in cash. Everything is on sale. Everything is so cheap. Um, uh, it, it was different before the COVID crash. Then we were 10% cash because we really were afraid that everything would come tumbling down. It, actually, that happened in March 2020. We saw a very speedy recovery. But I think this is this is different. And um, I wouldn't be surprised when markets have another bull run higher. There's a lot of money out there. It's hard to find uh, a good space for your money. Real estate is getting tough, the real estate market. So we see quite a bit of money available for equity markets and especially uh, natural resource markets. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that, uh, that negative. Of course, we could have some tax loss selling in Northern America for the next few months, but um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a very strong rally happening very soon because if you look at the technical indicators, if you look at the... The market from an Elliott Wave point of view, we're very close, very close to the, to a real bottom. And then you could have the start of phase three, the strongest bull market in, in commodities that we've seen for, for quite some time. Very compelling. And you brought up Bitcoin there. So I definitely want to pull on that thread. You're one of the few voices in the precious metals community that also embraces Bitcoin. I'm the same way. I see them both as sound money and as complementary and not competing assets. Bitcoin is actually what got me interested in sound money and then led me to gold and silver. Um, so could you break down for us why you also hold Bitcoin and how you differentiate it from gold and silver? I was always intrigued by Bitcoin uh, from the start. People tipped me, but I was very active in the gold and silver space. So I thought I didn't need it. Uh, I even called Bitcoin digital gold in 2014 in, my, in the Dutch edition of uh, the big reset. But I always thought I didn't need it because <laughs> I had so many other hedges. Uh, but then I learned that you know this 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 crypto space, this digital asset space, it's for real. It's um, and Bitcoin is the nucleus of the, of the digital asset space. So like gold is the nucleus of the commodity space, Bitcoin will always be the nucleus of the digital asset space. And I think Bitcoin has quite a bit more to run. So it's an essential part of my portfolio, personal portfolio, not in the fund. Uh, and I, I see um, uh, gold and silver and Bitcoin as, as, as brothers and sisters or nephews, and, and uh, they don't harm each other. They like each other. Yeah, absolutely agree with you there. And uh, one last thing I wanted to touch on before I let you go, and that is the geography of your fund, because looking at the geographic allocations, you have 31% in North America followed by 29% in South America. Seems like quite a large allocation to that part of the world. What are the opportunities you're seeing there? Well, there's allocation in uh, projects who are situated in Latin America. We're not invested on the stock exchanges there. So 70, 70% 65% of our investments is North American listed, so mainly Canadian listed companies, but many of the projects are in Latin America. And then we have some... 30% of our investments are in Australia, Australian listed resource companies, because we see many 
important discoveries being made in, in Australia, the great mining, Greatland Gold, a uh, few of those names come to mind. And then we have some 10% of our money in uh, London-listed uh, resource companies. Uh, but we go, we follow the largest projects, uh, we follow the best discoveries, and that often brings you to countries where you wouldn't invest normally, like Mongolia or uh, Guinea in the West Africa. But, but as a discovery investor, if you spread your risk, we spread our risk over 100 different investments, you can take a lot of risk in one project. Yeah, that seems like a very sound approach to potential political risk. Jurisdictional risk um, is to be across a lot of different geographies. So that makes a ton of sense. Well, Willem, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an awesome conversation. Before I let you go, for those who want to learn more, could you tell us about the Commodity Discovery Fund? And if there's anywhere else you'd like to direct people online? Yeah, the Commodity Discovery Fund is, is a nice place to start. Uh, actually, they can get my book, The Big Reset, for free there. They can download it for free. I'm also quite active on Patreon. Uh, just look for my name and Patreon. Uh, that's, you, you pay a little fee for that, but that's where I really give my insider thoughts. Uh, I was fed up by giving everything away for free. I have quite a, a number of followers on Twitter. You can follow me there for free. But the best stuff I keep for Patreon and, uh, well, these are the outlets you can follow me. Great. Well, I'll put links to all that in the description below for people who want to check it out. Thank you once again, Willem, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with the audience. Well, thanks. It was a pleasure. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.